joining us again after the break. I am Andrew Cox. I'm here with a discussion with Kenny Lund, the executive vice president at the Allen Lund Company. Uh, he is now in Pasadena, California. Joining us, how are we today, Kenny? Oh, doing great. Good to see you, Andrew. No, it is good to see you here as well. I'm, I want to jump right in. We've only got 20 minutes here, so let's get right to the punch. Uh, to us here at Freight Waves and to many in the industry, the Allen Lund Company has kind of seen it is synonymous with uh, a gold standard of produce, transportation, and brokerage services. Uh, but briefly, give us your little elevator pitch on why you've been asked to, to handle this discussion and why you're uniquely qualified to tell us what food shippers want. Uh, so I just celebrated 31 years uh, in the industry. And uh, when my father started the company in 1976, we could only handle exempt commodities. So that included produce. And uh, so we've grown up as a company um, handling uh, fresh produce. It's about 40% of what we do now. We handle all kinds of products, but that's still our, our favorite item is fresh produce uh, feeding uh, uh, the U.S. And, and Canada. And I spent years on the brokerage desk uh, moving uh, lots of loads. Uh, of fresh produce, a lot into the south, and I did the very first loads uh, of produce with Costco, who back in 1991 and 92 was adding uh, produce into their mix. Before that, they, so they sold almost exclusively dry freight, and so I got to be a part of that, and now they're uh, still a big part of our business, uh, our largest customer, especially in, uh, in, in produce. Well, lovely, Kenny. So, uh, Allen Lund Company is, of course, headquartered in California. That's where you join us today. And I wanted to uh, kind of reference a piece that you had written that you and I have talked about briefly off air, uh, about a piece you wrote at the end of March, and it was titled Four Days in L.A. And during this piece, you, uh, you touched about how a city of 10 million people only has roughly three or four or five days' worth of food on hand in store shelves to keep residents fed. Uh, but my, the big point is here that you weren't writing this to scare people. You were writing this to kind of congratulate and to, and to put notice on the efficiency and the complexity of the food supply chains in our country. And, you know, as we spoke off air a little bit, we've become accustomed to uh, having an abundance of different fruits and vegetables all over the world and all over the continent on our store shelves all the time. And really, we take it for granted. We, we didn't know the extent to which we did take this for granted until those store shelves were empty just a couple months ago. Uh, so and in that four days in L.A., you, you speak a little bit about the changes in consumer preferences uh, that have kind of forced grocery stores in particular to change not only their stores, but their supply chains. So I wanted to punt the question to you to talk a little bit about how consumer preferences have forced these grocery stores to change their stores and their supply chains. Yeah, uh, so it has been really interesting to see um, how stores have changed over the years. I'm old enough. I'm not that old, but uh, uh, old enough to remember that summer fruit was just that. You could only get it in the summer. You could get watermelon in the summer and uh, and really no other times, especially back east. They, they would see this a lot more as you would only see maybe a, a get strawberries for an eight-week uh, window. And now, um, uh, and I don't know if it's availability has changed the taste or if people's tastes have changed, but now people expect um, to have watermelon, cantaloupe, honeydew, peaches, oranges uh, pretty much year-round all throughout the United States. And our retailers have done an amazing job. And when you go in, I love to see the retailers have changed their stores to where the produce is right up front. 
uh, where you see it used to be in the back and drive back there, but a lot of them, they're right up front. It's one of their biggest sales items. And um, so people expect that. And for years and years and years, as we've walked into stores, we've only seen abundance. And maybe if there's a hurricane coming or something, there might be, you know, an, uh, you know, kind of maybe a couple days where we have uh, some shortages. But this COVID-19 thing has been unbelievable to where we have seen empty shelves and have seen um, scarcity and to where people have really thought, why, you know, what happened? Why, why do we have this? And so uh, it, it ended up uh, the four days um, article being um, uh, a little predictive, um, I, I guess, of, of how tight those, those, um, supply, um, those supplies are. Uh, and, uh, you know, people that go and, and study this stuff in college, they came out and said, you know, you need to have just-in-time inventory. And, and in food, we've been doing that for a long time, having ju just in time. Um, and we're not really good at just in case <laughs> uh, that they have in some of the manufacturing is, is the building up a lot more um, in inventory. Uh, uh, so it, it, it's, it's been amazing to quietly behind the scenes have built, have been a part to help build this, this supply chain that is um, so efficient, but maybe too efficient. Maybe so. Uh, so I want to. You mentioned food manufacturers in, in uh, specifically there. I wanted to ask you a question there. Over the past four months, we've seen, uh, and I want to say this. This idea comes from John Brewer at the the Car Carl's and Hardy Jr. Uh, I spoke to him in prep for this conversation, but he kind of pointed at the fact that the different sub subsectors of this industry, of specifically the food production industry, have proven more nimble than the manufacturing sector. So the logistics and the distribution of these goods have proven to be a little bit more nimble than the manufacturing. And I say that specifically kind of aimed at the meat factories in which we've seen uh, them not really learn lessons early on and have to shut down. And the meat factories are so heavily um, are, are, are very tightly. I mean, one, one plant that you and I spoke about, four or five percent of the total pork production came from one plant. So with all that said, my, my question to you is, what are the lessons that food shippers are learning or have learned during the last three or four months that will that will that will change the way that they've moving forward. Uh, that will help them ensure that we have enough food to make sure that we keep their workers safe. What are those lessons that they've learned, and how can they ensure to us that this will never happen again? Boy, I, I, you know, there's been such a consolidation in, uh, especially in animal proteins and uh, you know, beef, pork poultry. Uh, and um, we've now seen where a couple plants can be affected. And we had, you know, some shut down because they had too many uh, employees test positive. And um, they're, they're very critical, of course, in the production. So they've had to shut those down. And that has created shortages. Again, not so much empty shelves, but now, hey, you can go into a store and you can buy two items of, uh, you know, of beef or two items of chicken. And we're just not, you know, not used to that. Um, and maybe it's a little bit concentrated too much in a, in a few hands, but we, we always see it kind of ebb and flow. We see it concentrate and then it, and then it disperse back out. If you look at the number of SKUs that are on a, uh, in a particular store, it's gone up by thousands, um, you know, with, uh, different, uh, culturals, different uh, uh, different cultural mixes, and um, you know, uh, uh, just just the variety that people demand now. And then companies like Amazon, who have made every item available 
you know, within a couple of days to all over, uh, really has made the demand change to I want everything and I want it now. That's, you know, that's how hard is that <laughs> in, uh, in logistics? But uh, back to these, uh, the big produce, or sorry, the big uh, protein uh, plants, um, they're going to have to diversify a little bit more. They're going to have to, um, uh, maybe unfortunately, they're going to automate more too. Uh, because the weak link has been the the um, employees. So on the topic of consumer preferences and uh, and the changing of, of consumer preferences, I do have one question for you, and this is really focused on the, the farm-to-fork movement or that buy-local movement. And really, I, I question, do you think this is an opportunity for these nationwide, you know, massive domestic shippers to partner with local communities, with local farmers, to try to uh, bring them up together? Or do you see this kind of as a, as a big threat, as a possible threat to their market share and their dominance? So if you allow me to tell a kind of a funny story about local local produce, um, my dad was on the board of regents of a, a, a of a, a university up in the in the northwest, and the students the student union voted um, we're only going to buy locally sourced produce, and then they got really mad because they had no bananas and no strawberries and no cantaloupe, and because none of that was grown uh, locally. And, and uh, if it was, it was only for a very short time of the year. So they quickly realized that local is not really a thing, especially if you want bananas, because none of them are grown in, in the U.S. Uh, and But where local is really making a big comeback is in greenhouses. And uh, some of the uh, producers, some of the farmers, are doing greenhouses close to where they would normally deliver to. And so you have highly efficient greenhouses working on maybe a half an acre or one acre that are producing enough uh, in some produce uh, for that area. And so that's where uh, locals kind of making a, a better comeback. But they realize, you know what, we, we have such an amazing distribution system that we really can't define local. Does that mean within 10 miles? Does that mean within the state? Does that mean within the country? And uh, uh, so that's kind of gone uh, by the wayside. But we see more and more produce being grown in greenhouses. Uh, and with that, there's been a big trend. California um, used to produce as much produce as the rest of the United States combined. So 50% of the produce comes out of California. That is shifting now because California has been so hard on the farmers with re dramatic over-regulation. And now a lot of that has shifted to Texas, to Arizona, and especially to Mexico. And we now have more produce loads originating in Texas, and a lot of that's coming across from Mexico, than from California. I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. Oh, hey, that's that's news to me here at Freightwaves, even though we, I mean, I haven't noticed that trend uh, at either, but that's that's remarkable. Um, you know, that's you said that's something you never thought you'd see. You've been in this industry a very long time. Uh, like you said, you've been in here over three decades. I've only been here less than three years, so a big knowledge gap there. So forgive me if I sound ignorant here, but when doing research for our conversation here, I came across a 13-year-old article, one written in 2007 uh, from a major food shipper in which they talked about the challenges that are plaguing the industry and specifically challenging them. And the three of them are, are the things I see today. We see visibility communications and long unload and loading times. So my question to you, as a three-decade veteran of this industry, Ken, why is it so difficult to get past what are seemingly very easy or, or, or simple problems to solve? Why is this industry not pushed past those? 
Um, so I think if we had stayed with the way things were 30 years ago and then worked on those three things, we'd have been able to accomplish it. The problem is it's an amazingly diverse and complex delivery system that we have for the goods across the United States. So delivering strawberries is very different than delivering nuts and bolts. And, um, and it's very complex. And so when you, when produce is going, it can go 24 seven, you can be loading 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that just blows the mind out of some people that are doing, you know, very standard manufacturing. Uh, and so, uh, um, you know, it's just, it's very difficult to do on the, on the back end. There's a lot of information. Now we sell a transportation management system and, and it's built specifically for produce. And we have to have a lot more data fields <laughs> to handle produce, just having the temperature, you know, so it's, it's important not to know just on the traceability where the product is, but it's sometimes much more important to know what condition it is, what's the temperature. Um, and so we're putting live devices on these, um, uh, in, in these loads. And now we're finding that sometimes those devices, they catch on fire because the battery's in them because they're going up and down in temperature and they're getting run over by a forklift. And uh, so, we, you know, you go two steps forward and one or two steps back uh, at, at times. But I can tell you my 31 years, the communication is better than it has ever been. The traceability is better than it has ever been. Uh, and um, the, we have fewer claims because the equipment is better. The people understand it better. They're tied together better. The expectations have gone up dramatically though. We can send a package via FedEx and we can track it all along the way, but we send a truckload of strawberries and we have gaps in that information. And so that expectation that I wanna know where it is right now um, is a tough expectation. It used to be I knew where it was once a day. <laughs> you know, and that's not that's not that's not good enough anymore. So our expectations have changed, the complexity has changed, and that's just made those basic things um, that much more difficult. But we're getting there. We're getting there. We are getting there. You're right, Kenny. So you are the former chairman of the United Fresh Supply Chain and Logistics Council, or, or one of the Supply Chain and Logistics Councils, rather. Uh, and you were recently a part of a United Fresh webinar in which John Hawley, who is a, uh, a longtime lobbyist and uh, has worked on Capitol Hill for many years, he was on that call with you, and he serves as a lobbyist for United Fresh right now. And he, he spoke a little bit about the knowledge gap uh, on Capitol Hill, and I, I found this really interesting. And you may not be able to speak to it uh, a lot here, but I think you will because you've been here for so long. He, he says that uh, Capitol Hill and Washington, they have a, a keen understanding of the restaurants and the final and, and the grocery store needs, and they also have a keen understanding of the farmer's needs, but there, that, that gap in between the farm to the fork has not been met, that there is a knowledge gap there. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that there's such a knowledge gap on Capitol Hill for the, the truckers and the companies actually moving the goods, and what can we do to solve it? Um. So, you know, this is why freight waves is important. You make sense of a very complex system. And um, I, I found a lot of people that have been in the industry quite a long time don't understand it. A few people understand there are 400,000 plus trucking companies. I mean, that is unbelievable. That is mind blowing to some people that are used to, you know, how many airlines do we have? It's in uh, the hundreds. Uh, you know, max. How you know how many car companies do we have? It's less than a hundred, but we have four hundred thousand 
just trucking companies. Now you add intermodal and ship lines and uh, you know air freight. Um, it's an amazingly complex system. So even people in it have a tough time understanding it. Now you put in produce, which is handled almost entirely by by carriers with five trucks or less. And so to try to get that across in Washington, D.C., when their mindset is the truck lines are all big, trucks are always available. I just call and order it. It's like a cab in New York. I can get a cab all the time, any time of day or night. And they think that's the way trucks are. They don't understand regional shortages. They don't understand production of class eight trucks, how that down six months down the road, like right now we're in a in one of the lowest production points for class eight trucks. Six months down the road, we are going to have some shortages of available trucks. That always follows. Dad always said, watch class eight truck sales. That's the best thing to watch. On, that's the most predictive number. Um, so now you go into Washington, D.C., where they're dealing with so many different areas. And, um, and a lot of times I end up talking to somebody who's under 30 years old. Um, and so they don't know what they don't know. And uh, uh, one time I saw it was it was several people from government. They were all under 30. And the panel was, how are we going to make produce transportation more efficient? And their answer was, it's got to go on rail, that we're going to shift and all of the produce is going to go on rail. So I'm like raising my hand. I'm going, now 1% of produce goes on rail, of fresh produce, 1%. So I said, if we double the equipment available, on rail to handle fresh produce, that's going to be 2% <laughs> that's going to go. So you have to do just an unbelievable billions of dollars in investment to be able to handle fresh produce on rail. And then guess what? Who brings it to the railhead? The truck. And who picks it up at the railhead to deliver it? A truck. So it's, it's actually, it's not efficient on paper and in government. That looks really efficient to put it on rail rather than putting it on trucks. But in practice, it doesn't work. Um, uh, my dad had a great relationship with David Dreyer, who was uh, uh, pretty high up in the house. And he always, anytime he had any question about transportation, he called my dad. And, uh, and, and he, my dad could explain it, explain it to him. <laughs> Yeah, I, I found that interesting during that United Fresh uh, webinar you did there. John Hawley said the same thing. He said when it, that, that relationship between somebody in the transportation industry can be so important. He said when, when somebody comes to Capitol Hill and asks something of him, he always goes to you for the knowledge. Uh, and I'm glad you've been able to bring this knowledge to us today. I unfortunately have to bring this to a close. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Mr. Kenny Lund. Have a good day, man. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. And God bless the truckers. God bless the truckers. <laughs> no doubt.